Gracious, good morning to you. Uh, basis of our meditation is the first lesson from Romans chapter 15, verses 4 to 13. I won't reread it again, but uh, this much by way of introduction, really two introductions. First of which is this. I have a good friend, uh, going to retire in June. Uh, he's far more of a scholar, communicator, preacher, uh, student of all things culturally than am I. And uh, recently he, in an article, and then also orally, I heard him say, if I had to do it all over again, he's talking about his 42 years in ministry, he said, if I had to do it all over again, I would never preach on the epistles. And you guys, most of you are familiar with what the epistles are, right? So the New Testament from the book of Romans through Revelation, those are the epistles, fancy word for letters. What was he saying? Uh, we, as a cultural are so lost and backwards now in terms of no longer being able to discuss ideas that we've become so visually oriented that if we can't see it in front of us, we, we will not discuss it, we won't learn, we won't get it. Uh, we, we've so lost the art of oratory. Uh, President Obama, no matter what you may have think about, of him politically, good orator, right? Good public speaker. Compare that to most of the tripe that you heard from both Democrat, Libertarian, and Republicans during this last election season. Nobody knows how to talk anymore in, in a public setting. They can't communicate ideas. And it's not just the guys up front who have become less capable in oratory. It's those of us who sit and listen. Our attention span is like two minutes. And what we can actually ascertain and then also hold on to is minimal. Studies nowadays, are saying that when I got in the ministry in 1983, you would take home with you roughly 11 to 15% of what you heard in a sermon. Nowadays, that's somewhere between 2 and 5%. So about 95% of what I'm going to do in the next 20 minutes, right out the window. <laughs> okay. All right, let's say I have the offering, call it good. <laughs> All right. So, so you, get, you get the idea. We're, we're not good at handling ideas. And yet ideas is a big chunk of the New Testament. God meant for us to grapple with ideas, so that we will do. Second introduction. Yes, in a moment of stupidity, I moved east. I've been trying to move east to different places, Carolina, Virginia, Michigan, because that's simply where my work was, and I settled on South Dakota. Not all that far east, but in part, I got to still take care of Montana and the Dakotas. So that's where I live. I eat, live east. Sioux Falls, South Dakota is not a bad place. It's much more of a city, a medical center, an educational center than what you would think. It's not a hick town. Uh, they complain about the traffic and the urban sprawl, and I'm from Denver going, <laughs> yeah, right? Really? 200,000 and you're whining? <laughs> right? But, but here's the hardest thing that, uh, with, with the change from the front range, and I know we think we got wind here, but you don't have wind here like we got in South Dakota. You get wind gusts here. We had them on Saturday, right? Friday, but not like in South Dakota. There are prevailing winds. You can go out at four different times in the day, and you will find that the wind has come from the north, the west, the east, and the south, and everything in between in the course of that day. And it doesn't come softly, and it doesn't just confine itself to one season. It is prevalent. <coughs> That's the backstory for something that caught me off guard. There are a lot of people in this subdivision that I live in, and it's a cookie-cutter subdivision, four variations on a basic house plan. They just scraped the prairie, paid paradise, put up a parking lot and houses. That's where I live now. 
Uh, there are no trees. They're planted, but they haven't grown yet. There is no windbreak. We're on the far east end of town. There are no valleys like down by the rivers in the old part of the city. It's just wind, which comes blazing in from North Dakota or Montana and just sweeps everything away. So here's what was surprising when I went for my walk the other day as it's getting dark. People got Christmas lights up on their house, clipped on there firmly. What you don't see a lot of is decorations, these blow-up snowmen or the manger scenes, with good reason. You put a manger scene out there, it's going to end up in Minnesota by Tuesday. <laughs> and yet there it was. <clears throat> Upon a closer examination, I think this is a long-time Sioux Faller. It was weighted with various levels of sandbags. It was wired, not with little fine wires, but with heavy wire to hold it in place. And that made me cause to pause for a moment. Second thing I noticed, yeah, you got the wise men, you got the shepherds, you got the token camel, sheep, cattle, baby Jesus, all the things that you would expect to see. Plus, they must have gone to Kmart or Walmart or Target or something and gotten these mannequins and just dressed them up like modern people and put them right in between the wise men stuff. And I, okay, that's a nice message. Well, just for the wise men, it's for us too, I give you credit. And then there's this one, which always makes me think, and I've seen it a lot, baby Jesus is wearing a Santa hat. <laughs> oh, well, maybe cut him some slack. Might be a Christian, might be somebody saying, yeah, it's primarily about Santa Claus, but it might be somebody saying, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. I don't know. So uh, that, that's the idea. That's what all this buildup is with this introduction, this idea that, that Jesus gets defined in that way by a hat and he leaves us pondering, what is he? Is he just the reason for exchanging gifts and a belief in elves and Santa Claus or is he in fact the savior of the world who come in flesh and blood as every other human being? You can think about that because that's what Romans 15 is basically asking us to do. Let Jesus define himself. Don't let him be defined as simply a baby in a manger with or without the Santa hat. You let him define himself, if you want to follow there as well. <coughs> Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Before I read 5 and 6, let's just pause there. That's a loaded verse. Everything that was written in the past, you and I know that it's two-thirds of the Bible called the Old Testament. You can pick a whole lot of things out of the Old Testament, can't you? And say, well, what exactly is Paul talking about? I'm going to focus in on not so much the prophecies, maybe not all the stories that we find there, maybe not all the violence that we find there. I'm going to focus in on people who needed encouragement, people that we learned about in Sunday school, and how they were encouraged by God during the course of their tough lives. Well, let's start with King David, the king by whom all the other kings that came in the nation of Israel were judged. We think of David, well, living in a palace, got a gorgeous wife, got wonderful kids who will someday take over the throne from him. Read the story carefully. As a young man destined to be king someday, Jesus was hunted down by the current king, Saul, who wanted to kill him. He's a refugee, a vagabond, living on the run for years. So he becomes king eventually, he's living in his palace, but then one of his kids tries to take over the kingdom from him. 
Jesus is forced to leave the city and flee. Until thankfully some people intervened and, and brought him back. In a bit of a power struggle. In his old age, that's what he's going through after he did so much for this place. Ultimately, when, G when David retires, and the king who's supposed to take over for him, his son Solomon, does so, and goes on to become the wealthiest, wisest, most influential, most powerful person in the world at that time, and lives that way for 40 years, and then towards the end of his life, he writes what we call the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's pretty much the weeping and despair of an old man, that's what Ecclesiastes is, he looks at all of his power and his wealth and his accumulated goods and he says, meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. Think about that, how they needed encouragement. David, Solomon. Go to two guys who were put in somewhat isolation. Noah is a good example, going way back. We get together for holidays with our relatives and, and four days is too much, isn't it? Imagine being trapped in a ship for the better part of a year with your spouse, your three sons and uh, your daughters-in-law, and a bunch of zebras and whatever else was in there. Think they didn't need encouragement? Or another extreme, if you flip ahead probably a thousand years or so, there's the prophet Elijah. When the tough times of the struggle within the kingdom of Israel, I, Elijah says, I'm it. I'm the last believer on the face of the earth. Let me just die, God, and be done with it. So that's also included in this verse, people who needed encouragement. You could go then to... Jacob. Of the three patriarchs, he's the last. There's Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob. He's the one who has the 12 sons plus the daughter, Dinah. And the tribes of Israel are named after Jacob's 12 sons. And we think, well, that must have been wonderful and he was blessed and he got wealthy. Ever read about all the family dysfunctionality in Jacob's life and how miserable he was and how he just wanted to curse? I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> and, and just be done with it. And then if you flash ahead, after Jacob and his sons end up living down in Egypt, 400 years later, there's Moses. And he gets the small task of leading a group of people roughly the size of Metro Denver through the desert for 40 years. And all they did was bicker and whine and gripe. This is what St. Paul has in mind when he says, we learn about encouragement that God gave to struggling believers in tough circumstances already in the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament, the first thing that happens is that Jesus shows up. And what is Jesus? Jesus is to be seen as one who fully understands what it is to be human and to struggle. The book of James says so. He is tempted in every way just as we are. And just as David and Solomon and the others I referenced were. Tempted in every way just as they were experienced everything just as they did, and yet, he did not sin. Keep that in mind. Because Jesus comes along with words of encouragement that are recorded in the Gospels. If you identify what you need, he says, pray. Ask your Father in heaven. Pray boldly. Beg. When you feel as though you need something. Small and wavering, pray. God would strengthen your faith. If you were caught in the midst of fear, pray that God would deliver you. He offers encouragement in saying, you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear and endure. And ultimately the encouragement is, I will never leave you 
and that you will join me in heaven. When you look at baby Jesus in three weeks on Christmas Day, see a source of encouragement. And if you want to be a Jesus follower, if you really do, then see a natural reaction to the encouragement that Jesus has given you by being the Savior who atones for sin, by being an encourager in your own right. If you're a 12-year-old kid, the oldest kid in the family, perhaps you can say to the five or six-year-old, your life will be easier if you just listen to mom and dad once in a while. It'll go easier for you. If you're the parent of a teenager, sit them down and say, it is not easy. It's never been easy to be 13 through 19. It's increasingly more difficult in this culture. You ride an emotional roller coaster. You live in the moment. You despair. Get through it. I'll help you get through it. Just don't live in the moment. Take the longer view. If you're an older adult, say to the younger adults in your congregation, it's not easy to be married. Stay in your marriage. Keep the commitment. Do it for that spouse, not just for the children. Go to church. Be present with the Lord. Offer encouragement to people around you as you have been encouraged by the Lord himself. Jesus says encourager. Verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be encouragers as Christ has encouraged us. Secondly, Jesus is the one who accepts us. This is in verse 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Normally when we speak of acceptance in a Protestant culture, and we are Protestants, Lutherans are also Protestants, we're talking about deviance in doctrine. And that as long as we just spell God or Jesus the same way, can't we all just get along? That's the way the acceptance usually shows up in church discussions nowadays. Somebody's got a deviant form of sexuality other than what the scriptures say. Can you just accept it and get on with it? It's just sex. What's the big deal? Somebody's got a different view of baptism or Holy Communion than what's described in the New Testament. What's the big deal? Somebody doesn't necessarily believe in six days of creation and that God created everything and that God is the Lord of everything, not just partial things. He's our Lord Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday. If they don't happen to believe that, what's the big deal? Can you not just accept that? This is not what Christ is saying through the Apostle Paul when he says, be accepting of one another. He is saying, you have been accepted by God, by the intervention of the Lord Christ, who lived perfectly, not even a hint of sin, and died innocently, and rose triumphantly, and that and that alone makes you acceptable to God. It's what you trust in. It's the foundation of your faith and your hope for all eternity. And Christ is saying, in that regard, just as you have been accepted, accept one another. We know that he is not saying simply accept any doctrine that you happen to hear and it's good to go because in the next chapter in 16, he says when you hear false teaching, run away from it. Don't sit there and argue about it for lengthy 
period of time, when you hear it consistently at a place, run away from it. Find a better place. He is saying, you accept one another just as I talked about in chapter 14. Because he's writing to a congregation in Rome that was a hodgepodge of people. We're no longer writing to a congregation in Israel or Greece. The gospel at this point in time has reached Rome, the epicenter of everything culturally and also spiritually in the world. And there's a Christian church there. And it's made up of people from different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile. Gentiles from all over the world. He says, accept one another. It's people who bring their different cultures and their different customs. And the Jews want to still find a follow a dietary, narrow view of things. Whereas the Gentiles are saying, you know, eat this stuff. It's shrimp. It's good for you. Delicious. <coughs> what do you what's your hang-up on shellfish? Well, in the Old Testament, we weren't supposed to eat it. Well, it's not the Old Testament anymore. Boom, boom, boom. They're arguing at a potluck. Can you imagine? <laughs> just, just, just eat it and, and, and get over it. And they're arguing because you're so immature in your faith. Don't you know this? What a stupid question you asked in Bible class. Grow up. Be strong in your faith. And Paul says, you accept one another within a congregation. Man, that's important to hear in a congregation like this. I'll still use the inclusive pronoun, we. How old are we here? Six, seven? Seven. That's important. There's been turnover here. There's new faces here. It's roughly half of you I don't know where I'm doing. I haven't met before, I haven't talked to. And I've been gone nine or ten months. Accept one another. The cultural backgrounds are different. The spiritual backgrounds are different. we probably got differences of opinion on what's good for a potluck. Get over it. What's the brand of coffee? Get over it. Drink it. All right? You see what he's saying? Just as you have been accepted in Christ, accept one another without getting focused on the baggage that comes with it. I think you can make the case that the degree to which we are willingly capable of accepting one another in Christ is the degree to which we understand just how much it costs Christ to accept us in the first place. Jesus is encourager. Jesus is the one who accepts the last few verses. Ultimately, it's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is the one who gives us hope. So take a look at verse 8, first of all. I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promise made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. Jesus has become a servant to the Jews. How did he do that? Jesus was a Jew's Jew. I don't know if we say that often enough. He was circumcised. Dare we talk about that in a public setting? Because he still lived under the Old Testament law. The Old Testament laws do not go away until he dies and the curtain comes down the temple. That little bit of trivia on Good Friday. Then the Old Testament's over. Jesus lives under the Old Testament. His parents performed the rituals that you were supposed to perform when you had a baby especially a firstborn, especially a son. They followed through on that, including they had him circumcised. He was taught the law. He was taught the Old Testament. He was taught the promises. And he understood it to the degree that when he's at the temple as a 12-year-old, he's lecturing the know-it-all professors on how they should see things and understand things. He learned that and knew it. 
And in 33 years of living, he lived under all 603 Old Testament laws and kept them perfectly. He didn't go with the 1600, 1600 traditions that Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees added. He said, no, those are nuts. But the 600 laws that God gave through Moses, Jesus lived them, kept them perfectly. And most importantly, the 300-some prophecies in the Old Testament. He fulfills every one of them. Why? In order that he is able to say to his father, I've lived in their place. And that counts for each of them. And in order that he can say through words printed on a page to you personally, I have lived in your place. My perfection is your perfection. And the flaws that you have, the deviant behavior that you have, the skeletons in the closet, I've taken that away in that moment of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so I encourage you because I've accepted you and you do have hope. To what degree do you have hope? There's a progression of thought in following verse 8 as to what you can do as a Gentile Christian who has hope in Christ. Look at verse 9. Moreover, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercies, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. St. Paul is saying Jewish people who always had the word of God proclaimed that same truth to people who weren't Jews around the Mediterranean, North African world. Verse 10 goes a step further. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. Oh, that's a little bit more. The Gentiles who have now heard the gospel speak to other Gentiles publicly. They're rejoicing about Jesus. It goes a step further, verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. They're not just some publicly singing the praises of Jesus in the forums of the public settings. They are saying to fellow Gentiles, this is for you too. There's a progression of thought here. We sometimes speak of uh, really learning something and knowing something as kind of being a four-step process. What we're doing right here in this 20 to 25 minutes of me lecturing is we're listening. You can learn something by listening to a person talk, but again, how much of that are you going to retain? A little bit. What helps you to retain a little bit more? When you listen to something, but then you also see it modeled. What helps you learn a little bit more? Well, when you also begin to model what you have heard and say, I'm going to start living like that or thinking like that. And what's the ultimate step? If you really want to know something, well, Sunday school teachers know this. If you ever taught children in a Sunday school setting at Carbon Valley, if you teach that, one of the real benefits of doing that, be you male or female who's teaching, is you learn it better than you ever knew it before for yourself. Because you better know your stuff before you step in front of kids. Do not do like I did with the kids' lesson and wing it. <laughs> know your stuff by learning it yourself so that you can proclaim it to others. See the progression there? This is something we think we've discovered in educational and psychological circles in the 20th and 21st century. This is as old as the Bible itself. 
You listen it. You heard it from Jewish people. You talk about it amongst yourselves. And then you proclaim it to other Gentiles. That's the progression of thought. Why is it important now, 21 centuries early, later, in our culture? We become very passive at Christmas time. We sit in front of a screen and we perhaps watch Charlie Brown's Christmas yet again. Or we dial it up and we'll watch an old Christmas movie that we like and absorb it. We might even watch a Jesus movie. We might go to a Christmas pageant. We might go to a living nativity thing put on by a church. We might catch Handel's Messiah put on by a choir someplace. We become very passive in this season and absorb. How much do you learn? Not much. How do you learn more? By not only saying, I have taken something away from myself, but I open my mouth and I talk and I proclaim to others. That's the encouragement. It's exactly three weeks and counting till the birth of Jesus. You understand a little bit better and have been reminded that Jesus means to encourage you. You understand that he has fully accepted you as his child of God for time and eternity. You know that the hope that you have isn't just for now, but it is for, in fact, for eternity. Jesus' last word of encouragement is, you have a mouth, you have hands, you have a season in which you can impact those around you who do not yet know the Lord Christ, or do not yet trust him, and share the hope that you know to be true. God help you to that end.